no words of remorse before a lethal ejection of pentobarbital killed him on Friday. I asked God to forgive all those who plotted and schemed against me and planted false evidence, he said, according to the Associated Press. He added, I did not commit this crime. His crime? Brutally murdering his two-year-old daughter. Bourgeois was a truck driver, and the crime happened in the cab of his tractor trailer. From Freightwaves, this is Long Haul Crime Log a podcast about crime and trucking in the supply chain. I'm Nate Tabak in Toronto. I'm Noe Mahoney in San Antonio, Texas. And I'm Clarissa Hawes in Kansas City, Missouri. We're all reporters with Freight Waves. Today on the show, the massive drug busts involving tractor trailers at the U.S.-Mexico border, and the cyber criminals targeting the global supply chain and ransomware attacks. But first, the crimes of executed trucker Alfred Bourgeois. So Clarissa, you've been reporting on this case, and I, and I will say that it's it is a really it's it's quite a horrendous one, and and the details are really, you know, quite difficult to read because it does you know involves the the murder of a of a two year old. This happened you know in two thousand and two, so it's, it was it was quite a long time ago. Take us back there. How did this crime occur? Where did it happen? Well, according to the Department of Justice, Bourgeois was unloading at a naval base in Corpus Christi, Texas, in June of 2002, when his two-year-old daughter, who was um, in the cab with him, um, tipped over her potty chair that was in, in, in the tractor cab, and that he became enraged by that, um, and repeatedly, and I know the, the details are awful, repeatedly slammed her head into the truck's window and dashboard and eventually um, killed her. And, um, and he was charged federally because the crimes occurred on the naval base. She had like over 300 um, new injuries and healing injuries on her body from like a month of torture you know, on the road, which is horrible. This is really, it's, it's quite, quite a, quite an awful case, Clarissa. There are, there are some things about this that are, that are a bit unusual. So Bourgeois was traveling with his entire family um, in, in his tractor trailer. He had just found out that he was the father of this girl a month before she was murdered. And um, he had been ordered to pay child support to um, her mother. And so he had asked for temporary custody of his daughter to take her over the road with him. Clarissa, is that common that a truck driver would have would have their family with them on the road? Sometimes um, some drivers take, you know, their son or daughter on the road with them, you know, during the summer vacation or a Christmas vacation. Um, rarely an entire family do they take on the road with them. Do we know anything about, was he uh, working for a trucking company? And like, what, why was he, you know, what, what was he delivering to the nail business? Do we know anything about what, what he was doing at this time? Was he uh, working for a trucking company? And like, what, why was he, you know, what, what was he delivering to the nail business? Do we know anything about what, what he was doing at this time? Actually, the, all of the documents regarding his case are, have been sealed. So, um, you know, very little is known as if, you know, about if he was an owner operator or if he was a company driver um, during that time. Um, all we know is that he was he was scheduled to make a delivery there. So Bourgeois was backing into the 
loading door, and that's when the crime occurred. How how was it established that he was the the one uh, that was that was doing this? His wife is the one that um, came out of the tr- tractor trailer and said that his daughter was unresponsive and that Mr. Bourgeois was the one that committed the attack. There were eyewitnesses at the warehouse that um, noticed the the truck, the tractor trailer was rocking back and forth at the time, although they didn't know what was occurring inside. So um, there were several people on the naval base that, that were noticing um, that that there was a violent attack occurring inside. Bourgeois maintained his innocence, right, Clarissa? Well, he claims that his wife um, was the one who committed the crime, even though no, there were no um, no charges brought against her. Um, it took a Texas jury less than two hours to to render its verdict in a capital murder case, which is rare. You know, sometimes juries, it takes juries weeks, days, weeks um, to um, to render a, a, a decision. It took a long time to to get from there to his, to his execution. What were some of the things his lawyers were trying to raise? Both to were they trying to challenge the conviction at all, or was this really a, a question of trying to spare the the death penalty for for this man? His legal team definitely said that, you know, they weren't asking that he be released or that he not spend the remainder of his life in prison. They argued that he shouldn't be put to death because he had intellectual disabilities and under federal law, he should not be, he should be ineligible for the death penalty, but they did not want his sentence commuted or anything. They, they felt like he deserved that's probably not, I shouldn't say that, but um, his legal team um, wasn't asked that he be released from prison. They just, they just argued that he should not have been executed. So I think, Clarissa, there are a lot of um, unknowns about this case because it's so much of this is sealed. Is this something that you think ultimately is matters and you think, you know, should be out there in the public or, is is this kind of something that maybe for for those involved that that sort of let sleeping dogs lie? Well, as someone that always turns to the court documents, you know, to first, you know, I have a lot of questions, and it's hard to just depend on you know the Department of Justice and and the statements that they are providing to actually you know look at some of the details in the case, but. As far as the family and from and from what they've said is that, you know, that justice was served in this case. Is it unusual for, um, um, you know, you've been covering um, the trucking industry for a long time and covered a lot of crimes, both in involving truckers as victims and perpetrators and, you know, also as witnesses in, in your years covering covering these things. Is it unusual to have a to have a a crime like this actually occur inside of a of the cab of a truck? Uh, I've covered multiple cases where uh, you know, it, and typically it's where the drivers have been on have been murdered in their cabs, and or you know, victims of robberies or beatings 
uh, and those types of cases in my career. And is it is it maybe also it's kind of a, maybe a reminder that you know yes you you do have you know instances of you have truck drivers who commit crimes and in, in some cases really awful crimes, but in, in fact uh, drivers are, are frequently the ones who are who are vulnerable to being victimized. Isn't that right? Absolutely. And in in my career, I found that there are so many good truckers out there that are you know, willing to help out and, and see other truckers maybe falling victim to something, you know, happening to them and step up and help in many cases and prevent um, harm to their to fellow drivers. Turning our attention now to the U.S.-Mexico border, it seems like almost like every week that there is some kind of major drug bust, sometimes more, uh, involving trucks coming in from Mexico. And Noy, you reported on on one very recently that just sometimes it, it just I, I I have to laugh a little bit, even though it's obviously very serious stuff. Uh, yes, Nate, last week uh, in Texas, uh, in Laredo, Texas, there was uh, a case where a truck uh, hauling a shipment of rolled carpets from Mexico uh, was... Uh, discovered to have more than 7,000 pounds of uh, marijuana. And uh, another truck that same day, also in Laredo, was found to have uh, a case of beer. But instead of beer in the bottles, there was uh, liquid methamphetamine. And those two seizures netted about almost $3 million last week. Like liquid meth is, uh, it's potent. It's quite valuable. Like it doesn't, it doesn't take a lot of liquid meth to really have a valuable amount of drugs. Is that something that you you've been seeing a lot of? Like these kind of liquid meth coming in and cargos? Uh, yes, liquid meth, uh, crystal meth. Uh, just just got an announcement this morning that in El Paso, Texas, last week, uh, U.S. Uh, border officials found two thousand five hundred pounds of crystal meth. And uh, that that haul or that seizure was worth about twenty million dollars. So we're we're starting to see you know larger and larger quantities of meth and uh, marijuana being tried to trying to be smuggled across the border. Yeah. And we and we've seen a, a similar thing up here in in Canada, where marijuana coming in from Canada getting seized at the at the U.S. border. So what's what's been what's been going on? That's that we're having all these down there. Part of the reason we're seeing more tractor trailers used in these uh, smuggling attempts is because, you know, the U.S.-Canada border, the U.S.-Mexico border have been shut down for, you know, non-essential travelers. So there's less passenger cars uh, moving across the borders. And that has forced, you know, cartels, uh, smugglers to use, uh, you know, more tractor trailers. And that's one of the reasons. In a lot of these cases, the you know, this these uh, drugs are hidden in legitimate loads of cargo that are have customs preclearance. How is this happening? Like that, you have like basically, it's like the legitimate supply chain is the vehicle for this. Like, who? What's what's going on there? You know, that's one of the unusual aspects of you know all these seizures. You know, like last week's seizure involved you know a shipment of carpet. You know, and obviously beer. Uh, the one that I, the notice that I got this morning that involved, um, a shipment of, uh, lighting fixtures. So you, you, you know, every, every week it seems like there's a, 
they hide these drugs and different different things. So I guess th- their creativity is you know is pretty pretty amazing. And I, and I guess, but it also it raises questions right about where how how this is happening because you know stuff that is uh you know the northern border as well the cargo that is headed to the U.S. and, and vice versa is. You know, you have a, a lot of stuff, I think, coming out of these highly secured facilities, cameras and things like that to basically ensure that the, when a truck is leaving, that we know that we're getting, whether it's frames or avocados or whatever, but somehow and somewhere drugs are getting into these trucks. Do you, what do we know about how how this is happening? Well, you know, in some cases, from what I've been told by law enforcement, uh, some of these trucks when they leave you know whatever factory where they picked up their shipments somewhere along the way you know the driver will get you know stopped by cartel or gang members who then you know will tell the driver um you know we're putting this these drugs in your in your truck and if you don't go along with it you know we're gonna kill your family i mean this is what i've heard i'm not saying this is the case in every situation but that's one of the ways that you know these illegal drugs get on the get on the trucks that are bound for the border. That sounds like a very it's an awful situation to be in. It's easy to say from the outside that you know what I'm going to say no to the cartels, but it's like if your choice is going to try to run some drugs into the U.S. versus you know what a cartel could do to your family. I mean, I think it's 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 understandable. Do they get arrested a lot? Like what what happens to the drivers? You know, in a lot of the uh, press releases and the, uh, the information I get from U.S. Customs and Border Protection, I believe in some cases or half the cases, a lot the drivers are released only because the drivers can just say, you know, I didn't know what was on the truck. And, and legally, it's not their truck. It's not their load. And so I think it's very hard to, to you know, prosecute some of these drivers because it isn't their truck and it isn't their load. So... I guess that's one of the ways that, you know, the drivers can just say, you know, I, I didn't know what was on the truck. Well, yeah, and I think if you have the original seal on the trailer, you can't really hold the driver responsible because that's, you know, you have a trailer may, uh, may have a long journey before a driver picks it up. You know, with all of these uh, drug seizures, and I would imagine that uh, Customs and Border Protection, uh, you know, scrutinizing more vehicles... How how is that impacting the the really massive and vital legitimate flow of goods uh, going across the border? Well, you know, I I think it does add to wait times for uh, commercial trucks because uh, it takes away personnel. You know, it adds time to uh, you know people waiting in line. I mean, these if, sometimes it takes you know half an hour hour to check some of these trucks for drugs. That that takes away personnel who could just you know be checking trucks and passing them through. So, so the drugs have a a cost on you know personnel time on you know the amount of money we spend having to buy you know sophisticated equipment just to you know check for these drugs, X-ray machines, you know the canine dogs. So all of that adds huge, to cost and time just at the a border down there. Is that something that that the you know the people in the industry um, you talk to a lot? Do they complain you know, about it, that? It is things I've talked about with cross border operators, but it's it's been a part of cross border trade, I guess, for as long as anybody can remember. As long as there's been a border, wherever there's borders, people are going to try to smuggle stuff across. So it's almost a part of life. 
anywhere there's a border. And it's just something that you, as bad as it sounds, you sort of get used to it or you sort of put up with it. Well, Nate, uh, so, you know, speaking of gangs, uh, last week, a ransomware gang stole data from Cardinal Logistics, a trucking and logistics firm in North Carolina. Is that right? Yeah, that, that is right, uh, Noy. There, there have been a lot of a lot of the these things happening. Um, really, I would say in the last maybe four months or so. And what what these are are that there are these ransomware gangs out there, and they're sort of these these organized hacking groups. And how they make a living is that they breach systems of companies, and they essentially lock companies out of their data, and they steal it. And then they leave like a note saying, well, if you want access to your systems uh, and also if you want to not have our data posted, um, you need to pay us a bunch of money, usually in Bitcoin. And these demands can run from like, you know, thousands of dollars upwards of millions of dollars. So, Nate, what do we know about, you know, the ransomware attack on Cardinal Logistics? We don't know a whole lot in part because the... The company, and uh, you know, they're they're a uh, a carrier based in North Carolina that has uh, about maybe like thirty two hundred trucks, and they specialize in doing um, contract freight for other companies and, and sort of these dedicated services. So you basically, if you're a company that wants to have its own trucks but doesn't want to pay the money of having your own fleet of trucks, Cardinal is a company that does that, and and they're pretty and they're pretty big. So what we know about this and how we learned about this is that a number of these ransomware gangs have essentially they have like blogs and where they post data that they have stolen from these companies one of these groups um and they're called Re- this guy these guys are called Revil they kind of made an announcement on their blog well i think you know one of the unusual aspects about these ransomware attacks is the companies refuse any comment, you know, they don't want to talk. And, you know, why, why do you think that is? It's embarrassing that you've gotten attacked because what it's showing is that you had a vulnerability. And so the, the thing is, is that when companies decide to not pay, which is something advised by a variety of U.S. government agencies, probably most uh, cybersecurity experts are saying you, you shouldn't pay. But the problem is, is that when you when you don't pay, is that it kind of has a way of daylighting these attacks. And what happens is that this data gets exposed. And some of in some of these cases, this can be very, very extensive. It can cover the details of a company's financial performance, the customers they have. There's also a lot of data that goes out there related to present and former employees, truck drivers among them having personal information that is just thrown out there. So Nate, where is this hacked data being posted? It's called the, the dark web. And the dark web is like, it's not something that the average person can just access with their you know web browser. And But the, the, da- the, the other side of this, though, is that you still have lots of malicious actors out there, other hackers, anyone else who might be interested in finding this data, that it, it is accessible. And I, you know, I... I look at this stuff fairly regularly. I access it for the purposes of reporting to understand, you know. So Nate, uh, how do these attacks happen? Attacks happen in a very basic way, actually, a lot of the time. And that's through something called phishing. Phishing is when you have a 
an email that either appears to come from a legitimate person and may, in fact, technically from a, the standpoint of a system, maybe it comes from a, a customer of, of, a, of a trucking company or maybe, you know, something internally. But it's, it's an email that has this sort of uh, this code that then allows these hackers to then get access and turn the, the sort of the system against itself. It's, it's a lot like, you know, if you had like a really sophisticated burglar who's coming into the, into the museum, steal uh, like some valuable collection of jewels. It's like the equivalent of someone who's got, got either a very good replica of say like a maintenance worker's uniform with credentials, or they actually have those credentials and they walk in that way. And then they kind of, they do their thing. So Nate, do we know where these ransomware attacks are originating from or what countries, you know, USA or Russia or China? These are well-organized groups that um, are making millions and millions of dollars from extorting uh, companies. And some of these groups are are uh, essentially, they are state adjacent or have ties to states. And a lot of that uh, this one in particular that targeted uh, Cardinal Logistics, it has ties to Russia. But th- the fact is, is they could be, you could have uh, people involved that, you know, there could be someone, someone in their basement uh, around the corner involved in this, someone who's on an island somewhere, someone who's in Siberia. But ultimately, that sort of the, the people behind the Russian sphere, there are others where there's maybe some connection to Iran, you have maybe North Korea, it connected to some of these as well. So Nate, what can, uh, you know, trucking transportation companies do to protect themselves against these kind of attacks? Well, the, there's the, the purest view on this um, is that if everyone refused to pay these ransoms, that they would not, that these attacks would not happen because the only reason why they happen is that, you know, that these hacking groups make a lot of money doing it. The problem, of course, with that is that it sounds good in, in theory, but if you're, say, you know, operating a trucking company that is uh, is doing a lot of like revenue per day and your margins aren't great, the implications of it, if an attack actually disrupts your operations, it you know it can cost a lot a lot of money and uh, it can be cheaper to pay the ransom there may be a value in averting a public release of your data, your data. I think with that said is that what is clear is that prevention is, is the best medicine with these things. And that what really is the, the essential thing here is that everyone, I think from an owner operator to a, you know, a a company with thousands of trucks probably is not investing enough in their cybersecurity. And that this really need, needs to be viewed on the same level, other safety and physical security measures that companies do as a, as a matter of course. These are criminals that are breaking into companies and causing all sorts of mayhem and doing at times what can be very malicious things. And a lot of these groups are very good at what they do. So, Nate, do you think uh, these ransomware attacks are a growing uh, problem or threat in the trucking and transportation community. But what's really, what's alarming about this is that they do seem to be accelerating. And you see this across other industries is that these disruptions can, 
can have very serious consequences beyond costing a company money and exposing um, both uh, the sort of the business operations and, you know, and employees to, to really things that they don't want out there is that we think about the movement of essential goods. And I can't think of something that is that more essential right now than say COVID-19 vaccines. And if you have a, a, a trucking or logistics provider that is targeted in one of these attacks, depending on their, you know, what is compromised and, you know, whether it's maybe their transportation management system is that an attack could really the ability to move those goods to where they need to in a timely, you know, fashion. And, you know, there's, and probably theoretically the capability exists, you know, that if hackers really wanted to get involved, and I think there's not a cost benefit to them doing this, they could really mess around with the operations as they're happening. And thankfully that hasn't happened, but the consequences of these attacks you've seen in other industries in in the healthcare sector, for instance, this happened in Germany where a person actually died because their ambulance could not be routed properly. You think about the, the amount of technology that is involved in moving large truck fleets and things like that is that there is so much at stake with these things. It's not, this is not just about shakedowns. This is actually about like, this is very, very serious stuff. You've been listening to long haul crime log from freight waves. If you have a story to share, email crime at freightwaves.com. Tune in next time for more stories about crime in the supply chain. You can find this episode as well as every Freight Waves podcast by looking up Freight Casts wherever you get your podcasts.